there's an impossibility to it. And yet, if we go and try, there's also a chance. That quote is from Boyd Vardy, who was on the Invest Like the Best podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. And this podcast episode may have had the best 30 minutes that I've ever listened to, where Vardy um, talks about tracking a lion through the brush. And the, the whole podcast is, is actually really good. And what I most appreciated about this podcast episode was the perspective on tracking that Vardy has. And I've started to think about any kind of verb replacing any other kind of verb. So when uh, Vardy talks about tracking animals in the um, African savanna or in the bush or wherever he is, we can replace tracking with almost any other verb. It can be reading, it can be investing, it can be, um, it can be uh, having good relationships with people. Whatever those actions are that we want to get better at, this tracking metaphor that uh, Vardy uses is really, really helpful. For example, one key thing to tracking that he mentions is that you need to be relentless. And as Vardy explains it in the podcast, I got a, I got the perspective of a fluid relentlessness rather than a consistent pounding relentlessness. You need to kind of go with the flow. You need to provide constant pressure. You need to be more like water and less like a hammer as far as seeking out places to to do your work and to find things. Vardy says that when he's tracking an animal, he'll he'll follow the trail and then um, experienced trackers, people who have done it a lot, will sometimes stop where they are in the trail, even though the trail continues ahead of them. And they'll sort of fan out where they'll They'll do like a semicircle or a half circle around where they've been walking to see if they can kind of jump to another part because they have expectations. They have predictions about maybe where the animal was going or what the animal's mindset was or what the animal might have been doing. And when they fan out, when they do that half circle, they can kind of jump the track and and they don't always find that. You know, it's, it's kind of like uh, it's, a, it's a hit or miss system, no matter how good the tracker is. And so they'll, they'll return to the track. But it's that attitude of being willing to try this thing and to go out and do it. And then if you don't find it, to keep going. Another uh, part of it that I enjoyed was this idea of being patient and, and knowing that you won't always find something. But, but like we opened this podcast episode with, there's an impossibility to it. And yet... If we go and try, there's also a chance. So a lot of times, Vardy would go out on a track and, and not find anything. He would come back empty-handed. But, but sometimes, there was this huge payoff that was so valuable. He would be able to, to find something or to see something or to do something that, that had almost never been done before or hadn't been done in, in decades or hundreds of years. And, and it was always worth the attempt to do something like that. In another Patrick O'Shaughnessy podcast. Chris Cole talked about the value and role of small bets and asymmetrical returns. And that's the idea where you can you can put forth something that's a little risk, but you can get a huge payoff. And, and Cole, in his podcast episode, uses the analogy of relationships. And the idea was that relationships can have a really good big payoff. It's like when, when Vardy goes out and he tracks something and he finds like a, a lioness that's a, a huge payoff. And relationships can be like that, where if you just go and, and talk to someone that you want to have a relationship with, or you email someone that um, inspires you on the internet, then that, that's a, a small thing. That's a really small 
input to get a really large output from it. So if you're looking for a podcast to listen to, the Boyd Vardy one was one of my favorites. One. My favorite book I've read since the last podcast was Thinking Small, The Long Strange Trip of the Volkswagen Beetle. And this book is everything that I wanted in a book. It was perfect. It, it put the context of a business, that is the Volkswagen business, against the bigger backdrop of what was happening at the time. In this case, the rise of Adolf Hitler and World War II and the rebuilding that stemmed from that. And it was a great story because Volkswagen in Germany uh, really intertwined companies or intertwined entities. The, the two only exist with each other for, for better and for worse. And the strengths of, of Germany proved to be strengths of Volkswagen and then the weaknesses also also proved to, to be weaknesses. But the whole uh, situation in Germany in the middle of the 20th century was was really fascinating. Uh, it all centered around uh, Ferdinand Porsche, and that's the the, the Porsche that 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 uh, would go on to lead the Porsche company. But Ferdinand Porsche uh, was a was a car designer who couldn't get his car built. He had wanted to make the people's car. He had wanted to make something that was the equivalent of the Model T. That the Model T was the car that popularized driving in the United States. And, and Ferdinand Porsche wanted to bring this, this service to Germany. He wanted to provide all the German people with a car that they could use. But the, the problem was is that nobody wanted to do it. Ferdinand would work for um, maybe three or four different companies in the German automotive space. But no one wanted to make this, this simple car. And part of the problem was is that you had, to, you had to really make something simple. You had to make something that was incredibly, incredibly cheap if the people of Germany were going to buy it. Because a lot of Germans didn't have this same uh, income levels, or the car companies couldn't make the same volume and push down prices that, that they could in America. So while car driving in America and car growth in America was growing, the same situation wasn't happening in Germany for, for a variety of reasons. And so Ferdinand Porsche would, would make these high-end cars. He would make cars for the royalty of, of Europe, and he would make these racing cars. And, but, but he always had this idea in the back of his mind to make the people's car, to make something that everybody could afford. Well, uh, for better or worse, the person who was going to make this reality for Ferdinand was Adolf Hitler. So in uh, 1933, uh, Hitler comes into power in Germany, and in 1936, he introduces the four-year plan, which is a plan for industrial growth of cars and trucks and industry. Uh, it's a plan to build out the Autobahn, and it's sold, uh, it sold to the German people as a return to equal footing. So um, Dan Carlin has, has this great podcast uh, called Hardcore History, and when Carlin does an episode on the Cuban Missile Crisis, he opens the episode, and he's like, well, where do I start? Because the Cuban Missile Crisis has official dates. If you look it up on Wikipedia or you search for when the Cuban Missile Crisis was, there's very specific dates. But everything that led up to that, like a series of dominoes, goes back in time. And, and those dominoes uh, probably go back uh, forever, where, where we can see that as one thing happened, it led to another thing happening. And, and so it goes for Germany. The situation in Germany that, that led to the, the rise of Hitler was influenced by all these other things. It was influenced by um, the situation coming out of World War I and the uh, 
and the economic constraints that are put on put on Germany, the deindustrialization of Germany, and and so World War One we have effects of that, and and if you want to dive into those, Dan Carlin has a, a huge podcast series on on World War One, what led up to it, and what some of the effects were on it. So we have this series of dominoes that has led to Hitler and that has led to this four-year plan that is going to lead to this industrialization of Germany, this rearmament of Germany. So as Hitler is proposing the four-year plan, which is completely economically unstable, unless there's going to be a war, Ferdinand thinks that he's going to get his car built. And he doesn't see Hitler as an evil person in this book, or at least the reporting doesn't um, portray Ferdinand as having that mindset, because... He wants his car to be built, and he sees the thing that Hitler, the things that Hitler is doing, and he just doesn't think that it'll be that bad. Europe had just gone through this huge war, and nobody thinks, and some people don't think, that it's going to happen again. Ferdinand is really like the, the frog in the boiling pot of water. He just doesn't think that um, war is going to happen. In fact, he reaches out to Henry Ford to um, to talk to him about how he lays out his factories for the Model T and what he does to pay the workers. And he wants to pick Harry, Henry Ford's brain to take this uh, Ford process and introduce it in Germany. And, and he goes and he meets Ford and, and Ford's like, um, you know, uh, Hitler is a megalomaniac. He is going to, he's going to start a war in Europe again. And in and, and, and the book, uh, Ferdinand Porsche is, quote, in frustrated disbelief, end quote, that war is going to break out. So he's so focused on his car, or he's blocked out this idea of war. He just, he just doesn't think it's going to happen. But ultimately, um, war, war comes to Europe, and it comes to Germany. And um, the Volkswagen plant that was up and running at the time was in Wolfsburg, Germany. And this plant would, would go on, and it would make some cars, but then it was contracted into war service, so uh, they switched to making these, these jeeps for the German army. Um, the Allies knew about this plant and, and did some bombing of it, but miraculously, uh, the key equipment that was up and running wasn't, wasn't damaged. So uh, that's going to be an important factor, because after the war, Germany is carved into four pieces, um, and the four pieces are supervised by the United States, Britain, France, and Russia. And while allies fighting Germany after after the war, you know, um, we have almost the immediate start of the Cold War, where none of the four want to want to cooperate, and then the U.S. and Britain decide that well, you know, maybe Russia is this problem that needs to be stopped, so we'll team up together. And uh, this Wolfsburg factory is in the British section of Germany, and uh, the British soldiers and and the um, other Britons who were there look at the factory and they need to decide whether or not they want to co-opt this. They could have taken everything and done like the French who uh, who took apart the industries that were in their part of Germany and shipped them back to France. So the British, uh, they go to this factory in Wolfsburg and they look around and, and nothing is that good. They look at the cars that they had been making, but the cars aren't aren't really that impressive. Um, one one uh, British officer wrote, uh, on inspecting the car, quote, it's uncomfortable, noisy, and backward, end quote. So rather than ship the equipment back and use it in, in Britain, the factory um, the factory gets a go-ahead for, for rebuilding the German economy. And this, and this was something that the Germans and the Americans and the British and the French all had to agree with because um, they had to decide what to do with Germany. So Germany had just lost two world wars. And the first time, there was this huge demilitarization 
Um, and then the second time, the first proposal was to do just that. It was to basically make Germany an agrarian country with no industry whatsoever. And after the first winter of that, where people just didn't have anything to eat, um, the Allied the Allies realized that that wasn't going to work. Germany had to have some kind of industry to pay back the war debts. They had they had to send goods. They had to engage in international trade if they were going to become um, a productive member of the world again. So the the Volkswagen plant gets the go ahead. It means that that okay, you can you can keep building these cars. And as they build cars, they begin to export the cars because the German industry and the German uh, buying population at this time is is devastated. So um, they start to export cars to the Netherlands, and then a small shipment goes to the United States. And and over time, over over through the 1950s, and then into the 1960s, Volkswagen becomes uh, the largest exporter of cars out of out of Europe, and it becomes the largest importer of cars to the United States. And thanks to some marketing from the DDB uh, marketing company, Volkswagen becomes one of the most popular cars. And, and the Volkswagen Bug, which is, which is what we're talking about, and to a smaller extent, the Volkswagen Van, um, just become these, these huge staples of the American landscape. And they become so popular because of their unique style. And part of the reason Volkswagen succeeded, part of the reason people bought the Bugs is because um, Henry Ford's... Uh, Henry Ford's Model T and the idea of the everyman's car fades from Detroit. The cars in the 1950s and the 1960s from Detroit were, were big things. They were loud and, and they people wanted more and they wanted sharp lines, or at least that's what the automotive manufacturers expected of people. And then here's this Volkswagen Bug, which is which is small and it's reliable and it's got this great marketing campaign behind it and, and it's affordable. So these things start to show up and they start to become this, uh, this staple of culture. Overall, this book was, was good. It was a long read, uh, but it filled in some gaps that I didn't know about Hitler. It filled in some gaps about World War II and it, it told the story of the Volkswagen Beetle and it, it really is a rich, interesting, fascinating story where there's this company that exists within the larger context of the world. And, and these world events have a, have a major, major uh, effect on the way this company grows up and w- what it ultimately becomes. Two. Ken Fisher was on the Masters in Business podcast with Barry Ritholtz, and there were two things that Fisher touched on in the interview that um, I found very instructful. One was what Fisher calls multiple compound yields. This is what Fisher says, quote, IBM never had the best computer, but if you took all the pieces of what they did, they compounded to the best totality for the customer, end quote. This is an idea that Scott Adams introduced to me in his book, um, How to Fail at Nearly Everything and Still Win Big. And this idea is uh, Venn diagram skills. So if you think of the experiences you have and the skills that you've built out, and you think about all of those as individual circles on a Venn diagram, that point where everything overlaps is you. And if that point, if, if you occupy a valuable space, then you can have a valuable job. It connects really nicely with the ideas that Cal Newport writes about in his book, So Good They Can't Ignore You. In, in that book, Newport makes the case that rare and valuable jobs require rare and valuable skills. And if you can occupy a space, 
thanks to this Venn diagram, this, this combination of certain skills, then you can, you can have a rare and valuable job. And Fisher's point is that that may apply to businesses too, where if you can be a business that does certain things well, may, not the best, you won't be the best in this situation, but if you do things well, then you'll, you'll have a chance to really succeed because doing many things well can be more valuable than doing a few things excellent. I wrote about this on the blog, thewaiterspad.com, recently, and I identified it as a triangle of mediocrity, where if you can imagine a triangle, and then there's two ways to escape the triangle. You can have this Venn diagram approach, which is a broad approach over many things, and it's like a, it's like a semi-truck at the bottom of the triangle that, that sticks out past the corners of the triangle. And so you can escape it that way, by having many skills None that are excellent, but, but many skills that, that, that have this multiple compound yield that Ken Fisher writes about. Or you can escape the triangle the other way, where let's tip our shipping container or our, our, our truck container vertically, and then you can escape the top of the triangle to the left and to the right. And that's where you have fewer skills, but they're more developed. So the vertical rectangle is more like an airplane pilot or a professional athlete or maybe an accountant too, somebody with a very focused set of skills, but they do them so well that people will will pay them to do it. And both of these ways, whether it's the vertical rectangle or the horizontal one, are ways to escape the triangle of mediocrity. But if you're just a square, if if you don't have that many skills that are great, or you don't have a wide spread of them, then you'll never, you'll never get out of that triangle. The second thing that, that Ken Fisher talked about was, was how much experience matters. And this is what he said, quote, Most people haven't been hit in the gut enough times to know how they react when they get hit in the gut, end quote. And here he was addressing how uh, investors need to ride through a, a bear market or two to realize what it's like when your portfolio um, gets drawn down, what it's like when you have these, these uh, 20%, 50%, 80% losses, and, and how are you really going to act? It's, it's really easy to quote Warren Buffett to be, to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy, but it's another thing to really do it. And, and Fisher notes that you know, once you have experience, once, once, you, once you know what it's going to be like to come out the other side, uh, that's going to help you a lot. I noticed this in my own personal life. Recently, my younger daughter broke her arm, and, and um, it, <laughs> it, as, as you would expect, having a child with a broken arm has some inconveniences to it. But it really isn't that big of a deal because I know what it's like to come out the other side. I've had multiple broken bones in my, in my life. So has my wife, and, and I, I've seen enough of their lives that I know that, you know, it's going to be fine in the end. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay. This is inconvenient now, but this is really a blip on the radar. This is just a story that they'll tell to their kids many years down the line. It's, it's really no big deal. And it's nice to have children and, and see that in their own experiences because as I face my own challenges, whether it's writing or running a business or in my own relationships, I see that. Um, it's taken 11, almost 11 years of marriage to, to really have that same perspective for my marriage. Early on, I remember having fights with my wife and, and thinking that, um, you know, this is the start of the end. And then you realize it's, it's just a fight with your wife. It's, it's going to be fine in a week or, or in a month or, or however long 
however long it takes. And so getting that experience, whether it's for seeing a bear market or having children and seeing that obstacles will come and go or, or having time within a relationship, within a sticky situation, whether it's a business or a marriage or, or anything, um, can really help you get through it. Three. Patrick Collison was interviewed by Jason Calacanis on the Twist podcast at the Launch 2017 festival. And Collison was really interesting. He actually showed up twice in my podcast feed because he did an awesome interview with Tyler Cowan on the uh, Conversations with Tyler podcast feed. Uh, but, but Collison is the founder of Stripe, and he told the Stripe origin story to Calacanis. And um, what was interesting about it was that Collison's company, Collison's experiences, look obvious in hindsight. It, it seems very clear that, that payments, internet payments were a busted system and that someone would build it. But, you know, uh, Collison tells a really, what feels like a really authentic, a really stripped down story about what happened. And he, he says that... Um, Early on in a startup, in any endeavor, it's really not clear whether or not it's going to succeed. He says that um, the early days of a startup are consistent whether your startup succeeds or or fails. And um, so his a specific quote, quote, two years is a long time when you're in it, when you're working away with so many of these roadblocks and headwinds and people telling us that it couldn't work or shouldn't work or it's a bad idea. It could be that it is a bad idea or not, end quote. So early on, uh, the road for a startup is, is the same. It's up and it's down. There's headwinds. It's cold. If you think of it as, as a hiking analogy, it's, it's sort of like you have this gear that you set out with. And you think it's enough gear. And you think you can do the hike. But then you get out on the trails and you realize that, oh, um, it's raining 10 days in a row. And while I have rain gear, it doesn't dry out overnight because the rain is just constant. And at some point on that hiking trail, on that startup path, the roads diverge. And sometimes you're going to be lucky and you'll, you'll, catch, you'll catch sight of the, of the path diverging. And you'll just happen to go down one side randomly. And, you'll, and you'll, get the, you'll get the benefit of the doubt. You'll get the lucky break. And sometimes you won't. I remember Instagram, when Instagram first came out, it was only one of a few um, editing uh, photo editing things. It wasn't even the first one. There was one that was uh, like a had a real retro look, and and that was the that was the key um, the key editing app. It was the one that was featured in the app store. It was the one that if you had to make a bet, you probably would have bet on the leader. It was the person who was there first. It was it was the app with the most reviews. But Instagram ultimately became the app that you edit photos with, and it became an entire social network. Um, thanks to a lucky break, thanks to hard work, thanks to a variety of things. And it's really hard to tell early on that one thing is going to make it and, and another thing won't. Four. Ryan Holiday uh, wrote an article on April 14th uh, titled, If you're trying to speed up your reading and squeeze it into every cranny of your life, you're doing it wrong. Well, I, I agree with the sentiment, and I agree with, with the conclusion that Holiday writes, because he closes, he closes the article um, with this, quote, 
There's just one rule that great readers share. They value reading. They make it a priority. They don't squeeze it in between their other priorities. They make it the priority. They know that from this, everything else follows. The more you read and the more time you make for it, the better you are at it. The more time you end up having for it. It creates success, which creates leisure. They love it so much, they aren't trying to solve, shove themselves full of it until they're sick. No, they savor it, end quote. So Holiday's point in the article is that you don't need to cram reading into your life so much as you can just prioritize it in your life. You can make it something that's important for you. And um, one of the great changes I made in my life in that um, it's replacing with, I didn't have time for it with, I didn't prioritize it. I have a lot of time. I have 168 hours in a week and so do you and, and so does everybody else. And if you switch from saying, I don't have time for it to, I didn't prioritize it, then you can take a better ownership of those 168 hours. But, but while I agree with, with Holiday's sentiment, I agree with the, the general spirit of the article. Um, don't listen to Ryan Holiday if, if this isn't the best of how you, of, of how you read. If, if you enjoy reading in these little snippets and filling in the cracks of your life with reading, then, then, then do things that way. And if, if you like what Holiday is writing, then, then do things that way. There's a lot of advice on the internet. People love to give advice for things that work for me. There's so many blog posts that I read that have a title, much like Holiday's article, where I think the preface of it should be, this worked for me, colon, where um, you have productivity advice, and you have reading advice, and you have email advice, and all of those things, that works for the people who, who write about it, and it could work for you too, but um, I really encourage people to take the, the buffet approach to, to the internet and to things that they learn, and to really pick and choose things that you like and the things that fit in your life, where if you can read like Ryan Holiday, or if you can read like, like I read, or if you can read like, you know... Shane Parrish, who also reads a lot. If you can read like any of those people, then then read like those people. And if you can't or if you don't want to read like them, then don't. In a previous episode, I talked about how I'm trying to revisit the, the classics to, to read the Odyssey and the Iliad. And, and um, while I want to get to those books, I know that I can't get to those books yet. I don't have the I don't have the basic knowledge to understand those books. And so what I'm doing is I'm reading the children's books versions of them. I'm reading the middle school version of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And that's what I have to do to read those books. So that's my own little serving from the buffet table of the internet. I learned this trick that if you want to read difficult books, read simpler versions of those books first. And that works for me. And if that works for you, perfect. And if it doesn't, then you need to find your own method. So so take what you want from the advice that Ryan Holiday gives online. Take what you want from what anyone says online, including this podcast. If, if there's things here that resonate with you, if there's things that I've said that you truly believe in, try those things out. Put them in your life and see if they work. And if they work, keep them. And if they don't work, drop them. And that should go for everything. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.